Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. To know Tom Reed was to love him dearly. He's in heaven now, but his ministry lives on through the avenue of Convention Pulpit. This message was preached at God's Bible School and College back in 1988 at their annual camp meeting, and he titles it, Not For Sale. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. Keep passing it on and on. of old. 
Central Chicago, many times I'd stop and say, Lord, if I ever find out how to get saved, I'm going to get saved. And uh, raised up in Moody Church then, under Ironside as a boy, came up through that. God graciously as a teenager let me get into a little Pilgrim Holiness Church where the glory was on. The glory was on. And uh, I became convinced that they had what I was looking for and get in right away. And kept going for about six months. But I finally settled it one night I was going to be a Christian. I'm so glad that I did. So glad that I did. And then this is just a part of the privilege that we have as Christians. The best is always ahead for the child of God. doesn't matter how good it is now, how well things are going. The best is always ahead for a child of God. And so I thank God for the privilege of being at uh, GBS camp with all of you good folks. And uh, everyone here has been so gracious. They just go out of their way to make you feel welcome and to help you. And then the Lord has wonderfully helped us. Now, Rex, Larry probably aren't too happy. They like it when sweat's running down your britches leg and it's about 90 or higher. But uh, we normal human beings, God turned his air conditioner on yesterday, and I'm enjoying this. Your lady said to me this morning, she said, oh, I'm so glad for this cool weather. said, last night's the first time I've slept uh, in several days. So God is good to us, and we have a good day before us. Brother Smart's going to jump for us this afternoon. Say, how do you know? Because I've heard him preach lots of times, and he almost always jumps when he preaches. And uh, so we're just looking forward to a good day in the Lord. A fellow came into church one night while the preacher was preaching off the street, sat down in the back, sat there for a few minutes, and uh, finally nudged the man that was sitting next to him and said, how long has he been preaching? And the fellow said, I think about 35 years. Well, he said, I'll wait. He said, he ought to be through pretty soon. Probably the most frequently told lie in churches is, preacher, you could have gone on for another hour. I was enjoying that. Now, they might have been enjoying it, but they didn't want you to go on for another hour. I learned a long time ago to watch the kids in the congregation. When you lost your kids, you've lost your crowd. Now, you adults, you'll sit out there and look sanctimonious and pious and look right at me. Your mind is a million miles away. You're not catching a thing I'm saying. One Sunday morning after church, uh, the Lord had helped me to preach, and a few folks were telling me how much they appreciated the message, and the preacher, I wish you had gone on, I wish you wouldn't have quit. The little boy went out, and he said, whoo, preacher. But I didn't think he was going to ever get on. And uh, I figured that he was probably more honest and accurate than the rest of them were. All right, turning your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21. How many of you heard last night's message? That was tremendous. That was a masterpiece. God sure helped that old hillbilly boy to preach, I tell you. Uh, thank God for the ark. I'm still feasting on that this morning. Great message. First Kings chapter 21. Everybody ought to have your Bible and follow along and check up on the preacher. You know why I'm waiting for you to find the place, don't you? I told you the other day. I have a mother-in-law, unfortunately. Her pet peeve is preachers that announce their scripture and start reading before she finds it. She's not noted for her speed. So I just kind of wait till folks find where I'm going to read from so you can follow me. 1 Kings chapter 21. 
Would you stand out of reverence for the word, beginning to read at verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise, and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Dahab's name, and sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him, to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed the fast, and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones, that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Father, thank you for this camp meeting. From the very opening service until this present moment, there's been a consciousness of thy divine presence, and we thank you for it. Lord, I believe that you have directed each speaker. I believe that you have anointed each singer, and we thank God for it. And now, Lord, we're gathered in for this service. We're praying for a great day in Zion. We're praying that it will be a day of victory, that it will be a day when men and women will renew their covenant and when they will determine afresh and anew that they're going to live for God, that they're going to love and serve Thee. Now, Father, there is so much truth that is embodied in the Scripture lesson that we have shared. Thou dost know that carefully we've been seeking Thy face for this specific service, and we ask for the help of the Holy Ghost. Lord, we learned long ago that no 
man, and certainly not this man, can preach unless God anoints him to preach. Anointing makes the difference between preaching and speaking. When you give the anointing, the truth may be like a burning arrow, finding lodging place in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, and helping them to settle it, to live victoriously and fruitfully for God. Help us now, we pray, and for anything that's accomplished, we'll give thee praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In verse 3, And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbiddeth me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Uh, my heart has been especially affected by these altar scenes here at GBS. I have one girl and one boy. Wife and I were married for 11 years. Before we had any children, they told us we'd never have any. And God so wonderfully answered prayer after 11 years of marriage, gave us a beautiful little girl, prettiest girl that was ever born. Of course, I know you disagree with me, but you have a right to be wrong if you want to be. And uh, then three years later, to add to that joy, why God gave us a boy. Faith was a real little lady, just uh, a real little girl all the way along. Jim was just the opposite. He was all boy, and I'm glad God made them that way. They both went to Bible school, and uh, each of them have shared with me. We're a very close family. Each of them have shared with me about kneeling at the altar and struggling over issues and struggling over God speaking to their heart. So whenever I see anyone at the altar here, but especially these young people, I, my heart just reaches out to them. I wish that I could inject into them what I know after this hundred years or so of living for God. Uh, I, I really do wish I could just kind of impart to them and say, Oh, young people, if you only knew how good it was to be a Christian, and if you could only understand how God makes up the difference and how God compensates for anything that He asks us to give up, for He'll never take anything from us, but why don't you give us something much better in return for it? And uh, you'll never walk any road, and you'll never carry any burden, but what He isn't always there, walking with you and carrying the biggest end of the load. And so my heart just goes out to them. I, I, I just pray as I kneel here on the altar or by the altar or whether I'm down by them, I just pray, oh, God, help them to settle it. Help them to settle it to go with God. You know, I'm so thankful that God helped me to count the cost before I got in. Uh, I, I love emotion. I like for folks to act like Brother Smart, as some of you folks have been. I like to see him jump and run and turn somersaults. And man, I got in in a demonstrative church. Uh, a fellow was there for a revival one time, and God hit that place. He said, man, for just a minute, he said, I thought the rapture was taking place. Because about 25 people just simultaneously came to their feet and took off. And uh, he said, I, I thought the rapture was taking place. So I like shouting, and I like Holy Ghost demonstration, and uh, I, I do my share of making all the noise that I can sometimes. But I like for people to settle things so well down in their heart that when all of that emotion is simply a memory and you're not feeling anything and, and there are choices that have to be made, you simply do it because it's right. And young people especially, I would encourage you this morning to have things so thoroughly settled in your heart that regardless of what comes across your pathway down the road, it's never even questionable about which way you're going to go. I'm going this way because it's God's way and because it's right. That's what um, Naboth did. Naboth, and that's what I want to preach to you about, I won't get through, I never do. In fact, uh, Jim tells me, my boy, he's my best critic. 
I, I appreciate my boy missing now that he's not at home with me anymore. He's my best critic. He would always really lower the boom on me. He said, Dad, you try to cover too much material in too little time. Well, this is a series, so I'm going to give you a series in about, 50, oh, no, about 20, 25 minutes. I started to say 15. I, I can't even get started in that. But I want to speak to you about being not for sale. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbiddeth me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And I would encourage you, whether you're young or middle-aged or as old as Russell Buchanan back there, that you will just simply have it settled that I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to sell out. And I thank God that there are some people that have come to that place in their life. Now, the devil's crowd doesn't believe that. They believe that every man, every woman have their price. But thank God that isn't true. Some people have got it settled that they are not for sale. And I, I'm glad that by the grace of God, I'm among that crowd. Don't put a price on yourself. The devil will probably pay it if you do. And you will be the eternal loser. In the city of Memphis a few years ago, uh, one night there were a quartet. In fact, there were a quartet of pianists, five young fellows from Trevecca College that had been in that town for some kind of a seminar. And uh, after the seminar was over, they had folded up tables and chairs and worked around there. And it was after midnight, and they were walking across the lobby, lobby of this fine hotel. And one of them punched one of the others, and he said, Hey, fellas, he said, That's Elvis over there coming across the lobby. And sure enough, Elvis Presley was coming across the lobby, had a suite there in the hotel. And so they went over like any young person would have done. They were excited to see Elvis Presley, and they started talking to him, asking for his autograph. And so he said, uh, asked them who they were, what they were doing, why they were there. And they told him. And he said, well, look, guys, he said, I'm not sleepy. And uh, said, are you in a hurry? And they said, no. I said, well, why don't you come up to my uh, room? So let's just sit down and talk for a while. And so they went up to his room and stayed there with him until all about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they talked to Elvis, and he talked with them. They told him uh, who they were, how God had saved them. They were preparing for the ministry. Some of them were preparing to be missionaries, and some were in a musical program. And his response was, I know what you fellows are talking about. Uh, he said, I got saved one time when I was a boy. He said, I started my singing, started my musical career in a church. That was where I first sang. And he said, I know what you boys are talking about. He said, I would really encourage you to stay with it. He said, go on with what you're doing. And uh, they said he had tears in his eyes while he was talking to them. And they said to him, said, Elvis, said, if you know what it is to be saved, if you know how good it is to be a Christian, said, why don't we just pray here in your room? Why don't you just get out and, and pray and get back to God, ask God to forgive you and give your heart to the Lord again? And he looked at him and he shook his head and he said, boys, there's a price to be paid to be a Christian. And he said, I'm not man enough to pay that price. He said, I sold out. A long time ago. And they still call him king, and he had a checking account of $10, $12 million most of the time. But he said, boys, I can't pay that price. I'm not man enough. Not too long after that, they found him dead from an overdose. I say again, young people, don't put a price on yourself. Don't put a price on yourself. Because probably if you do, the devil will pay that price. But thank God there's some people who are not for sale. Let me just let me give you my outline, then we'll get as far as we can, and we'll break in time for lunch. But uh, I like to think that our nation, the good old United States of America, isn't for sale. I like to think that my church, our church, is not for sale. 
Our home is not for sale, and then thank God I'm not for sale. I am an American from the top of my balding head to the bottom of my bunion feet. I, I, I was out this morning walking, getting my five miles in, and there's a beautiful place over here they call Eden's Garden. I don't think it's that beautiful, but it's a beautiful place to walk. And as I was walking along there, there was a tower of some kind off in the distance, and old glory was up on top of that thing, and the breeze was blowing, and that old flag was just standing straight out there, and those stars and stripes were there. And I'm still like John Glenn. I just kind of get uh, butterflies down in my stomach. My old heart turns flip-flops when I see the American flag like that. And as I was walking along, I just said out loud, Thank God for old glory, home of the free and, and land of the brave, and I, I thank God for the privilege of having been born in America. Like others that are here, I've had the privilege of seeing other parts of the world. And I've seen some beautiful sights, and I've seen some interesting cultures. But I have never seen a place in my life that I wanted to live in, that I wanted to say, well, I'll renounce my American citizenship, and I'll become a citizen of this country. I am an American. I believe in it. I believe in our democracy. I, I believe in our spiritual heritage. I believe in our democratic government. I believe in our economic system. I, I just feel that it's all God-given. And I know we're not the only land. We're not a Christian land anymore, and never was a time when everybody in America was Christians. But thank God our nation was founded for uh, Christian liberty and freedom. It was founded on Christian principles. And old uh, Benjamin Franklin himself, he might have been an agnostic, but if you can find an accurate history book somewhere, uh, they will tell you how that when the Continental Congress was in an uproar and they were at uh, loggers' heads and they weren't able to get anywhere, that old Mr. Franklin said, Gentlemen, I perceive that we ought to go to prayer and implore the assistance of Almighty God in our deliberation. And all of those men bowed their heads and began to pray. Some of them got on their knees and they got up and in just a few hours hammered out uh, the articles of incorporation for our nation, uh, the Bill of Rights, and all of the other things that go along with it. And we are a free nation today. We were founded. I don't have time to go into it. But our forefathers, the pilgrims, came here. They'd already left England. They'd gone to Holland, found out that their children were being assimilated into the Dutch culture and the Dutch national church and the Dutch language. And so they heard about a new land. And at great cost and sacrifice, they left Holland and came and landed on the rocky coast of New England. And the first thing they did was get down on their knees and thank God for permitting them to arrive here. You remember well how they suffered so that first year. Uh, most of them died, and yet the next year they uh, declared a day of thanksgiving. And you know as well as I do the history of this great nation. Remember how that Mr. Washington, uh, leading this land of ours with a ragtag continental uh, army, would kneel there in the snow at Valley Forge and implore the guidance of Almighty God for victory. It was utterly impossible for those 13 colonies to win their independence. There was no way in the world that they were adequate uh, to take on the greatest military might of the world at that time. But they did anyway because God was in it. And God was honoring them for what they had done. 
And beloved, as far as I'm concerned, the spiritual heritage of America is not for sale. If Mrs. Murray O'Hara doesn't like it, why doesn't she go somewhere else? And if the ACLU doesn't like it, why don't they go somewhere else? And if the uh, communists and the socialists and the atheists don't like it, why don't they go somewhere else? And just simply let we folks that believe in God and Jesus Christ and the gospel have the privilege of living in a land that is least nominally Christian. Our democratic system of government, and if you didn't vote last time, don't you dare criticize anybody in office. You say, well, preacher, they're all crooks. crooks. Let's get the least crooked one we can find then. That's right. I remember back a few years ago when Lyndon Johnson was in office and Hubert Humphrey was his vice president. Mr. Johnson was going in for surgery, and I was out among the church got homeless people, and Richard Payne was testifying, and, and he said, uh, I think we ought to pray for President Johnson. And he said, I, I think we ought to pray for him because he's a human being. He needs help. And he said, I think we ought to pray for him because the Bible says that we're supposed to pray for our leaders. And he said, I think we ought to pray for him because when we think who the vice president is and what would happen if he died, man, it scares me to death. And uh, so uh, you ought to be praying for your leaders. That's right. Uh, you really should. You ought to be praying for whoever's in there. The Bible tells us that the hearts of the kings are in the hand of God and that he turns them wherever he wants them to. And there are a lot of times that ungodly men are in authority and they do things and later on they wonder why they did it. But they did it because God's people were praying and answering prayer. There was a time when Robert Ingersoll ran for governor of Illinois. And there was a little band of praying free Methodist women that banded together and prayed that God would keep Robert Ingersoll from being the governor of Illinois. And he was defeated soundly in the election. And he was on a train one day and was uh, just kind of giving vent to a tirade against religion and against God. And he said, what did prayer ever do for anybody anyway? One of those little Quaker ladies happened to be in that car, and she spoke out and said it kept you from being the governor of Illinois. So uh, thank God, God can answer prayer, and we ought to be praying for the leaders of our land. Then our economic system is not for sale. Uh, I believe that the government ought to provide for people that cannot provide for themselves. But I think we ought to draw the line where God does. And God says that if a man won't work, he's not to eat. And if you take the food stamps and the support away from a lot of big, broad-shouldered, lazy bums that wouldn't work if you gave them two jobs, why, uh, it would change things and do a lot for our national uh, debt. But uh, our nation is not for sale. But then I, I pause, and this is probably where I'll get hung up because I love the church. A lot of folks have given up on the church in our day. They talk about a post-Christian era. Friend, there isn't going to be one. There really isn't. Now, I know that our culture isn't Christian. I'm aware of that. And I know that we're living in a land where atheism and socialism and agnosticism and communism is doing everything that it can to destroy everything that we believe in. But I have a more sure authority than these fellows, even than the statisticians. For I read where Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For many, many years I have been praying, Oh God, balance me. Balance me as a Christian. Balance me as a preacher. Balance me as a pastor. 
I settled it 39 years ago to take the old-fashioned holiness route. I haven't changed one conviction. I haven't changed one thing that God gave me back then. I have every standard, every area of separation that I had back then. I still have them this morning. But I'm also aware that there is a balance that is necessary and that a, a light is not light because I preach it. You know, that's where we preachers need to wake up every once in a while. You say, well, bless God, I preached that, and I gave them chapter and verse. But it doesn't become light until the Holy Ghost takes the Word of God and reveals it to them, and they say yes to God. Then it's light, not because we said so. I've pastored the same church now for 32 years, at least on a part-time basis I have, whenever I'm there. And uh, I have never yet. Pastor, brother, if you are having trouble, I've never yet had any difficulty in getting folks to line up when they really pray through. I mean, really pray through. And what good would it do to line them up if they haven't prayed through? If you get the thing in your heart, if you really get a good experience of grace in your heart, God will do something for you. All right, now let's get back. Our church is not for sale. It's biblical doctrines are not for sale. There are three basic ones. And the first is that this old book is the inerrant Word of God. The Bible does not contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, all the way over to Revelation 22, it is the Word of God, and there are no non-essentials in it. God only has to say something one time for it to be true. So one of the things that is not even controversial is to whether or not this book is God's Word. Its biblical doctrines are not for sale. Not only the inerrancy of the Word, but the fact that a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl has to be genuinely saved in order to get to heaven. None other than the Master himself said, except ye be born again, ye cannot see the kingdom of God. I tell my people to interpret the Bible in the light of the rest of the Bible. little old lady said one day, it's amazing how much light God's Word throws on commentaries. And old Scott said he usually finds out that when he's hung up, Adam Clark is hung up. I mean, after all, they were just men, you know, and uh, God has not given us his word to confuse us, and I do not uh, even imply that I understand it all, but I believe it all. I believe every word that is in it. And Jesus said that you have to be born again in order to get inside of heaven. You have to be genuinely, thoroughly saved before you can ever make it through to the city. I'm not about to get into any polemical, polemical doctrinal discussion this morning, uh, but there is a judicial sanctification that has begun when you're saved. I appreciate what one of my preacher brothers said the other night, that this idea about somebody getting saved at the altar and walking in all the light they've got and going out here and getting hit by a car, dying going to hell because they weren't sanctified is nonsense. It isn't scripturally supported. When you're saved, you're genuinely, totally, thoroughly, completely saved. Bless your heart. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away, all things have passed away, and all things have become new. I remember a few years ago, not too many years back, 
One of the men in our church <clears throat> had been requesting prayer for a fellow that he'd worked with. And old Ken McGovern is a good old Tennessee boy, just plain common labor, retired this past January. For more than 30 years, and he always witnessed everybody out there, just kind of an easygoing, laid-back Southern type, about like Larry here. And everybody liked him, you know, except Larry's, Larry's a hybrid Southerner. He's not a, not a genuine ethnic one. But anyway, Ken had been testifying to this old boy, and uh, the boy got sick, was in the hospital. Ken had been requesting prayer for him, and uh, we'd been praying for him at the church. And he went into the hospital, he was requesting prayer for him, and uh, Brother McGovern said to him, he said, Brother Reed, I wish you'd go call on this fellow, and told me his name, Floyd Stokes was his name, they called him Sonny. So I wish you'd go and see him, and I said, I, I will, Brother McGovern, the first time I get in that area. Now, you have to understand that Chicago stretches from Gary to Milwaukee. That's all Chicago, 125 miles, and about 50 miles wide. There are approximately 10 million people in the Chicago area. The last time I took the phone book and sat down and counted, there were 104 hospitals. And uh, so you can drive all day and make two or three hospital calls. But anyway, one day I was over there in that area, and it just dawned on me. I'm sure the Spirit prompted me, and I remembered what Brother McGovern had said. So I stopped at Christ Hospital in Oaklawn, and I went in, and I found out that this man was in the intensive care unit there in the hospital. And so I made my way up to the unit, and I always try to be as cooperative with hospital officials as I can. And uh, they request that you not stay more than five minutes in a unit like that. And so I went in, and as I went into the room, I'd never seen this man before, but there was seated in a chair beside his bed a handsome fellow, I suppose probably at that time around 40, and his hair was prematurely white. It was as white as the snow, but he was a fine-looking fellow. It didn't look like there was anything wrong with him. But he had one of the saddest faces I have ever seen in all of my life, just total dejection written all over his countenance. And so I introduced myself. I said, Mr. Stokes, I'm Ken McGovern's pastor. They all called him Mac. I said, I'm Mac McGovern's pastor, and I said, uh, we've been praying for you. Mac's been requesting prayer for your church. We've been praying for you. And I went on hurriedly to say, I said, I don't know anything about you. I said, I don't know about your spiritual relationship. I don't know anything about your religious background. But I said, I want you to know that God loves you. And no matter where you are and what your need is, if you will just take your hands off of your life and open your heart up to God, God can help you. God can even touch your body and uh, help you to get well and get you out of here. And just hurriedly went through the plan of salvation very, very simply. He wasn't saying anything. He was just sitting there looking at me and tears were in his eyes. And so my five minutes was up, and I said to him, I said, can I pray with you? And he nodded that I could, and uh, so I bowed my head and just prayed very simply, felt God's presence there in the hospital room, and turned around and walked out. The next day I left for a revival meeting, and I was gone for about ten days, came back, and uh, Brother McGovern said, uh, Brother Reed, he said, uh, Sonny's out of the hospital, he wants to see you. And so I took the address that he gave me and went across uh, town to a little bungalow and went and knocked on the door, and no one came to the door. And I was rather surprised because I knew that he had just gotten out of the hospital. But it was early spring, and uh, the leaves were just coming out on the trees, and the grass had turned a beautiful green, and some flowers were starting to poke their heads up above the soil. And so I thought, well, I'll go around back, maybe try the back door. So I went around the sidewalk beside the house, and I uh, was getting ready to go in through the gate into the backyard when there arose a figure off the back porch, this white-haired 
good-looking fellow stood up, and he saw him, and his face just lit up like a, a million-watt bulb. And he said, oh, Brother Reed, come in, come in. And so I went in, and we sat down on the porch, and uh, I could tell that he was just bursting over. Now, here was a man, one of my brothers, who is a, an alcoholic, told me later, he said, the last time I ever saw that fellow, he was riding a motorcycle into a saloon with a pistol in his hand, wanting to kill the bartender. That's just the way he lived. Never went to church, had no time for God. And uh, so he said, Brother Reed, I want to talk to you. So I went over and sat down, and, and he was just brimful. And he said, you know, when you came up there in the hospital and prayed for me, and I said, yes. Well, he said, the doctors had just walked out, a team of doctors. And he said, they had told me that I was eaten up with lung cancer, that I would never leave the hospital, that I was going to die, and that I probably only had just a few days to live. And he said, I was scared. And he said, I didn't know what was going to happen. He said, I didn't know anything about praying. But he said, when you prayed for me there that day, he said, I felt something. And he said, I began to pray. He said, I thought maybe there was hope for me. Maybe God could even help somebody like me. So he said, I began to pray. I began to ask God to help me and to have mercy on me and to let me live. And he said, I started feeling better. And he said, uh, that afternoon, he said, I got up and put my robe on. I walked out of the intensive care unit and walking up and down the hall. So I'd like to scare the nurses to death. They came and got me and hurried me back to my bed. But he said, the next day, the doctors came in and, and just kind of shook his head because I was stronger and feeling better. So they took me out of intensive care. And he said, I just kept praying and kept getting better and kept getting better and felt good. And said, finally, just a couple of days ago, he said, they all examined me again and gave me all kinds of tests. And they said, well, Mr. Stokes, we don't know what's happened, but said, uh, those tumors are subsiding. And said, you're getting stronger and you're getting better. And said, we're going to let you go home. And he said, Brother Reed, I came home. And he said, I was so happy. Uh, he said, the first thing I did, when Brother Smart was testifying the other day, reminding him, said, the first thing I did, I went to the icebox and got my beer and I poured it all out. And I got my whiskey and I poured it all out. And I got rid of my cards and I got rid of my dice. And he said, I unloaded my gun. And he said, I kneeled down by my bed at night. And he said, I thank the Lord for letting me live through the day. He said, I just feel so good. And he said, when I wake up in the morning, he said, the first thing I do, I get out of my bed and I kneel down and thank the Lord for letting me live through the night. He kept saying, you know, Brother Reed, I just feel like I'm reborn. And I said, well, Sonny, the Bible calls it being born again. And I want you to know, friend, that he went on and got sanctified and lived consistently a number of years for the Lord. And I had the privilege of preaching his funeral, but it wasn't from lung cancer. God healed him and God saved him. Now, your conversion may not be that dramatic, but you're going to have to be born again if you ever get inside the kingdom. You're going to have to be sanctified holy if you continue to walk with God. The Holy Ghost will just graciously and gently and clearly lead you into the experience of entire sanctification. I'm going to throw, throw something at you that will cut some of you off and, and put me on your blacklist, but I still believe I'm with the book. Now, I know that in order for you and I to be sanctified, that we have to be completely, unconditionally surrendered to the will of God. You can call it dying like a yellow dog in a weed patch if you want to. You can call it killing the old man or the old woman. Call it whatever you want to. But I was not any more surrendered to God the night he sanctified me than I was the night he saved me. Not one bit more surrender. I got saved all by myself at home on Thursday night, and Tommy Holshauser from Frankfurt Pilgrim College was preaching a weekend meeting, and I got sanctified on Sunday night. 
But I was not any more yielded to God Sunday night than I was Thursday night. And then another thing that intrigues me, and I've gone through it again and again and again in the book of Acts, other than on the day of Pentecost, any time that anybody is recorded as having been sanctified, one of two things was happening. Either they were sitting there listening to the preacher, or the apostles were laying their hands on them. And I believe it is as simple for God to sanctify you as it is for Him to save you. I believe if you're sitting out there this morning and you're not sanctified and you want to be, you love God with all of your heart and you've been seeking and the devil's been defeating you, I believe sitting right there in your seat, you can say, Oh God, give me the Holy Ghost, sanctify my heart, and God will sanctify you sitting right there in your chair. I've heard Brother Flexen tell more than once how as just a boy they sent him to the well to draw water. Back, you know, when we left the old straight bucket down and would draw the water out and pour it into a bucket and carry it home. I remember those from my Tennessee boyhood days. Brother Flexen said that he'd been seeking to be sanctified and that he went to the well to draw a bucket of water. And that as he poured the water out of the bucket that he'd pulled out of the well into the bucket that he had brought to carry it home, he said, the Lord said that's exactly what I've been wanting to do with you. I've been wanting to fill you with the Holy Ghost and you wouldn't let me. And he said he picked up his bucket and started down the road and God sanctified him walking down the road carrying his bucket of water and then he went home and set it down carefully and went into his room. He's afraid he'd lose it. Oh, friend, uh, there's nothing that's too hard for God. Uh, it's the will of the Father that you be sanctified holy and if we being evil know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask Him? Hallelujah. You say, preacher, are you sanctified? Yes, thank God I'm sanctified. There is not one single solitary thing in my heart that is in rebellion against the will of God. The Holy Ghost abides in sanctifying fullness. And God did it at an altar of prayer, but if I would have known enough about it, He could have done that at home too. The doctrines of the church are not for sale. And I've got to hurry. I want to get through with this pint. Uh, it's freedom in the spirit isn't for sale. Oh, thank God for freedom in the spirit. You say, preacher, it's not all in the noise. I know it. It's not all in the shouting. I know it. It's not all in the demonstration. I know that. But thank God for demonstration. I love it. I love it. Amos Ham told how that he was a pastor in the church of the Nazarene down in Houston, Texas many years ago. And if you've never seen Amos shout, man, you ought to find out where he's at and just go see him. Watch him shout one time. He and Spencer Johnson, they, they have the most unique way of shouting. But anyway, he was pastoring down there, and there was a great citywide crusade that was going on. They just had one little baby then. So you know that was a long time ago because he's grandpa now. But anyway, uh, his wife was singing in the choir, and they had rented a large auditorium. The Nazarenes there in that area had rented a large city auditorium. 
auditorium, they were having a citywide crusade, and Sister Han was singing in the choir, and Amos was sitting back there with the baby, giving it its bottle. Back in the good old days when they weren't plastic and, and uh, engineered properly, you know, they're just a plain old glass bottle with a nipple on it. And he was giving the baby its bottle, and uh, the more the choir sang, the happier he got. And finally, he handed somebody the baby, and he dropped the bottle, and Amos took off around that auditorium, just hooping and sh- shouting and praising God. And that concrete floor, that bottle crashed on it, and milk just ran everywhere, and glass splattered, and people had milk sprayed on them. And when he came back and sat down and saw what had happened, the devil jumped on him and said, Now you're a fool. You've made a fool out of yourself. Look at the mess you've made here. You're a fool. And he fought the devil all the rest of the service. But there was a great altar service that night, and he kind of forgot about his embarrassment and went down and was praying with seekers. And after the altar service was over, there was a young woman that came up to him. Her face was bright with victory. She just prayed through and found God. And she said, Brother Han, she said, I've been backslidden for years. And she said, my heart has been as hard as a stone. She said, God hasn't spoken to me. So I've been attending this crusade and nothing's been happening. But she said, tonight, when you jumped up and started shouting, God spoke to my heart and conviction gripped me and I got hungry for God. She said, don't ever stop shouting. And oh, a friend of mine, don't put it on. I don't like worked up hallelujahs. I don't like just mere emotionalism. But on the other hand, bless your heart, if God should just accidentally on purpose pour some glory out in your soul, give expression to it. Let God bless you. Some folks will shout, some folks will cry, some folks will laugh, and some folks will do other things. But whatever God tells you to do, you go ahead and do it, will you? Because I believe there's an old world out there that's still hungry for that. One of the men that helped to pray me through used to tell how that he was sitting on a bar stool one night, he and a buddy of his, and they were getting ready to go to the theater. And his friend said to him, let's go to the show. And Brother Cox replied, said, let's go down to the Holiness Church. said, we'll see a better show there than we would at the theater, and it won't cost us any money. We can get in for free. And so they went down and got under conviction and found God and lived a wonderful, consistent Christian life. God help us that the freedom of the Spirit isn't for sale. I've enjoyed what we've seen here at God's Bible School, but I believe that God has even more for us. But friend of mine, it isn't frothy, it isn't light, it isn't shallow. It only comes when God's people have been much in prayer and going down before God and waiting before the Lord. I had the privilege of serving on her Hope Sound board for a number of years and when the school was going through the process of accreditation. And one of the visiting teams had come down to uh, look the thing over and evaluate it. And we had met with them the next morning. One of these men who was a Baptist man, president of one of the Baptist colleges, said, I was out early this morning walking and praying. And he said, I was looking this uh, campus and this institution over, and and he said, I have a deep appreciation for what you people are and for what you have been. And he said, I was wondering what the secret of Hope Sound was. He said, it was about 5 or 5.30 in the morning. And he said, I walked past the tabernacle, and I heard the sounds of moaning and groaning and uh, uttered prayers. And he said, I looked in. And he said, there were several old folks there, gray-haired moms and dads, and a few young people that were 
were gathered across that vast auditorium and that, that audience, uh, that altar, and they were praying. And he said, I closed the door quietly and continued my walk. And I said, there it is. That's the secret of Hope Sound. And it's the secret of Hope Sound and God's Bible school and any church and any institution and any missionary organization. Oh, Mom and Dad, some of you out there, your hair is as white as the driven snow and your physical strength is abated and you can't go and do like you used to and the devil fights you over it. I want you to know you can have the most fruitful, profitable, deep ministry that you have ever had or you can pray and you can get a hold of God and you can intercede and God's men will be strengthened for the labor that God has given to them because you pray. I meant to be through by now. Let me hurry to give you just two or three other things. The love and the unity. I'm talking about the church not being for sale. The love and the unity of its members aren't for sale. You say, well, that's not the way my church is. Then you better check up on yourself. That's one of the very proofs of your being a Christian. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another. You say, well, they, they irritate me. They're so different from what I am. Do you ever think that you're different from what they are? My wife and I celebrated our 37th anniversary the day before yesterday. And we had a great anniversary because she was in Chicago and I was down here. Oh, seriously, opposites attract, but they also clash. We're opposite. I mean, we're as opposite as can be. That's right. Brother Smart said, yes, sir. He's been there. I've made her more friends across the country than she'll ever make for herself because I pick on her and you women feel sorry for her. Anne French came up to me and said, Tom Reed, if you talked about me, if I was married to you and you talked about me like you talk about your wife, I'd leave you. I said, I'd want you to. But Joyce is as slow as molasses in January. It takes her longer to do less than anybody I've ever seen. Ron, she's slower to sue. Really? I never read in the Bible where Jesus ever ran or got in a hurry. Neither has she. Not one time. You know, she thinks that daylight ought to come about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, just, just, but we love one another. We're getting along fine. We've had a wonderful marriage because we love each other. And that works that way in the church, beloved. When you love God's people, oh, you may even cross theological hairs and you may not agree on everything, but you're going to love them. You're going to stand by them. I'm the oldest of six boys. Three of those boys are unsaved. They're as mean as the devil. Probably isn't anything they haven't tried or wouldn't try. But I could go to the phone right now and call any of them, two in the Chicago area, one in Houston, Texas, and I could say, I'm in Cincinnati, I need help, and every one of them would say, I'll be there just as quick as I can get there because they're my brother and they love me. That's the way the church ought to be. We ought to love one another. We ought to stand by one another. Most of the things that we quarrel and fall out over don't really mean anything anyway. That revival meeting that Brother Smart was talking about the other day, when the entire church came to the altar, God helped that fellow to preach. 
uh, in a liberal, worldly church up there. Sister Smart was in the hospital, didn't know she was going to live or die. They stole his truck, and everything was going in reverse, and the old boy was laying it on. He was preaching. Right after that revival meeting closed, we had in Chicago 40 inches of snow in 24 hours. I mean, man, they were forecasting snow flurries at that morning about 7 o'clock, and by noon we already had about 18 inches on the ground, and it looked like God is just uncapping heaven and pouring it out, and old Chicago stood still for three days. I mean, it stood still. Nothing happened. They were taking people to hospitals and helicopters and in, uh, sleds and everything else. It just stood still. My father, who's been crippled for many, many years, he retired early, disabled because of a crippled leg, but he was still working at that time. And they lived out in the southwestern suburb. Dad walked, worked way over on the north side of the city. And along about noon, when they saw how serious that the snow and the weather was, the factory told the men to go on home. That it looked like they were in for a real bad blizzard and for them to go on home. And so dad called mom. This was about noon. And he said, uh, I'm leaving. He said, I'll be home as soon as I can get there. Well, the snow just kept falling, just kept coming down. And along about eight o'clock that night, still no dad, no word from him anywhere. And, and we were all worried about him. And uh, my brother's uh, they're giants. This is no exaggeration. They won't run anywhere from six feet to six five. They run anywhere from 210 pounds clear up to 400 pounds. I mean, they are big, big boys. And uh, so they were home. There were two of them that decided, three of them, that they'd go out looking for dad. So they took their car and they put chains on the back wheel and they piled sand and other things in the trunk and they took off looking for dad. They knew pretty well the route that he'd be coming across the city. And uh, we didn't hear from them until about 6 o'clock the next morning. But anyway, along about uh, midnight, my brother Dwayne, who was at home at that time, uh, was out shoveling snow. He'd been going out about every half an hour, shoveling the walks and brushing things off and trying to keep ahead of the snow. And so he'd shoveled from the house clear down to the road. And about uh, my mom and dad's house is about the fourth house from the corner. And in that falling snow, uh, down on the corner, he, he looked and he thought he saw a figure down there, but he wasn't sure it was snowing so hard. But in the brightness of the streetlight, it looked like there was somebody down there. And he stood and looked at him, and then he didn't see them. And he thought, well, it's probably not anyone. I'll just go back in the house. But for some unknown reason, he thought, no. He said, I better go down and see if there's somebody down there. And uh, he's probably the strongest one of the six boys. And so he made his way down to the corner. And lying there in the snow was my old crippled dad. He told us later, he said, I'd fought it for eight hours, got as close to home as I could get, a few blocks of home, pulled the car into the parking lot of a store, and started trying to make his way home through that snow. My brother reached down, put his arms under my dad, who weighs about 180 pounds, and picked him up like he would a little child. Walked home with him. Laying down on the couch in the front room. You see, friend, that wasn't hard to do because that's Dad. We love him. That's the way it ought to be in the church. That's the way it ought to be in the church. The privilege of the Great Commission isn't for sale. The love 
love and the strength and the comfort that the church provides in your hour of desperation isn't for sale. The hope that it gives in life's dying hour isn't for sale. first pastor I ever had was a little pilgrim holiness church in the town of Onaarga, Illinois, about 75 miles south of Chicago, a little country town. I pastored there for a year, and God gave us a wonderful year, and I was wrestling with the call to preach. wasn't fighting it. I just simply didn't know whether it was called or not. So I went back home, went to work, and was drafted. But after the service and after Bible school, after we'd started the church in Chicago, there was a fine young fellow down in that church, the only Christian young boy in the congregation, a teenage boy at that time, but I was just 19 when I took my first pastor. But anyway, this boy was there, and... Uh, loved God, lived for God, in spite of the fact that he was the only young person, married a fine young Christian woman, and they had uh, they had three beautiful little babies. But one afternoon, we came in from church, and the phone was ringing in our house, and I went over and answered the phone, and a voice said, Reverend Reed? I said, yes. He said, this is Officer Foster, Bridgeview Police Department. He said, there's a party that's been trying to get a hold of you all day, and they called here in the police station. They thought we might be able to help them find you, and he gave me a number that was a familiar number, and I immediately dialed that number, and a tear-stained voice called my name on the other end of the line, and she said, oh, Gene and Becky were killed on their way home from church today, so can you come? So wife and I made our way back down to the little town where we'd pastored into that beautiful home that Gene and Norma had established for themselves. I remember a cold February day. It was 28 below zero, snowing furiously. We laid that precious young father, beautiful little five-year-old golden-haired girl, to rest there in that little country town cemetery. Spent a few days with Norma. She had two other children. One was about 18 months old. One was just a baby. One of them had been sick that morning, so she hadn't gone to church. Gene and Becky had gone. He was Sunday school superintendent. On the way back home, the crossing, the railroad went right through the center of the town. He lived on Main Street, and three blocks from his house, the lights had been malfunctioning. They'd been on and off, and the bells ringing for a couple of days. And Witnesses said he acted like he never saw the train, just drove right across the tracks, and that speeding train smashed into the side of that car and hurled him several hundred feet down the tracks, and he and that little girl were killed instantly. That night after the burial, we'd gone to bed. Up in the night, we heard weeping. Joyce quickly got up and went into Norma's room, and I dressed as quickly as I could, and I went in, and this young widow, two little children, was kneeling by her bed, sobbing her heart out. We just simply knelt down and sobbed with her. Sometimes when words don't mean anything, words are so light and so cheap, they're better to not be spoken, so we just knelt there and wept with her. But after we had cried for a while, her weeping had subsided somewhat, we began to pray. Somebody else joined us in that bedroom. She looked up at us through pure, dimmed eyes, and she said, what would I do if I didn't have Jesus? I want to tell you, young person, it isn't hard to be a Christian. My time is gone. I'm, I'm sorry. I really meant to only preach a few minutes this morning. Forgive me. But it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And if you'll give your heart to Him, He'll stand by you. Just make up your mind. 
that you aren't for sale. Go on to lunch. You're dismissed. God bless you. The heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.